Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Today, uh, we have a special session in which I'm interviewing two people. Uh, the two lawyers work for the firm Herbert Smith Freehills in Johannesburg. First, Ernst Muller, who is a natural scientist turned regulatory lawyer and focuses on the laws that govern the exploitation of natural resources across Africa. He also frequently advises clients on matters related to sustainable development and ESG issues. Justine Sweet, on the other hand, is a safety, health, and environment lawyer who heads that practice in the same law firm. Justine, Ernest, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you very much, Sheila. It's good to speak to you today. Thank you very much, Sheila. It's a great pleasure to be here. That's lovely. So let me start uh, with a question which I'd like to pose to both of you, starting with Ernest. Ernest, do you see ESG as primarily a legal governance or an ethical matter? Thank you, Sheila. I, I think that is a fantastic question because ESG as a concept, uh, I think, straddles all three. Um, and as lawyers, it's often important for us when we engage with our clients to understand exactly from which angle we should approach it to give them sound advice. Um, I think as a premise and from the outset, it's very important for the three of us today to acknowledge that environment, social governance, or ESG, as it's uh, uh, now known, uh, is not environmental law 2.0 or corporate social responsibility 2.0. It's an entire paradigm shift to the way that corporates must go about their business activities. Um, historically, the focus has always been primarily on profit. Now, under the, the objectives of the ESG agenda, corporates must also focus on matters relating to the continued viability and sustainability of the business. So if we take that to your question, whether ESG is primarily a legal governance or ethical matter, I think the answer there is that it is in the first place a governance matter because it should inform the way that businesses go about their businesses. Of course, ESG must then be informed by the legal framework where we think about on the one hand, the subject matter that fall uh, under the ESG umbrella, whether it's environmental issues, social issues, or governance issues, those aspects are of course regulated under specific acts or regulations that form part of a legal framework. And then of course, at the same time, ESG also seeks to achieve uh, specific corporate purposes. So I think, yeah, perhaps, and I said this at an IBA panel that I moderated earlier in the week, where we were discussing a voice for Africa in the sustainability conversation, I would suggest that we should reorganize the letters and not talk about ESG, but talk about GSE. Over to you, Justine. Well, uh, Justine, what are your thoughts? Uh, thanks, thanks so much, Sheila. And um, it's interesting because I, I may have a slightly different view to, to Ernst. Um, I would say ESG is, is definitely most of all an ethical issue, um, although the law will catch up. Um, and I do appreciate that, that governance obviously plays a, a significant role in, in how corporates must act. 
I would also add that, in my view, it's increasingly a fiduciary responsibility, particularly in as much as um, applying ESG to, to companies um, and, their, and their business is increasingly being shown to bring financial value, competitive advantage, and long-term sustainable value for, for all stakeholders. Um, and lastly, and I think the, the um, crux of it is due to the rapidly changing regulatory landscape, um, the consequences of failing to address ESG risks are considerable, and this makes it a, a legal imperative as well. So the one thing you learn very quickly as a, a, a non-legal eagle is that if you put two lawyers in a room, they'll all have a different view. And it turns out that uh, ESG is no exception. But, but you do make very interesting points because Ernest on his part sees the emphasis being on the governance and flipping uh, the acronym around. You, on the other hand, have added the notion of fiduciary responsibility. Justin, I want to follow up uh, on that issue. What do you mean by fiduciary responsibility? This term is not self-evident to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast followers. So, so fiduciary duties is, is really about how um, the directors and management of a company operate and um, work in accordance with ethical practices. And this is, I suppose, where I'm going with why my view is that it's an ethical issue. Um, and, and basically, it's about how they run their, their business and, and what obligations they have to run the business in a way that is, is ethical, appropriately governed, um, and ensures that the business itself is, um, is run efficiently and, and legally. Mm -hmm. So you, I want to follow up on something you said. You said the law will ultimately catch up. Uh, and, and so I wanted to just test your thinking there. Are we seeing an increase in laws that regulate climate change and related matters, thanks in part to the growing debates around ESG and to your point, uh, governance and responsible uh, ethical business practices? So I wish I could say yes. Um, but maybe let me give you the South African example first. In South Africa, we started having discussions about the climate change bill, specifically in 2017. And I remember this well because I was working in corporate at the time and I was invited to participate in the initial stakeholder um, engagement process for the development of that law. At that meeting, the um, Department of um, Environmental Affairs, as it then was, it's now got uh, a new name, um, said that they wanted to publish the law by the end of that year. We are now in 2022, and it is still not finally promulgated, although it has advanced quite considerably. I think what the South African example is showing is the complexity associated with publication of, of climate change related regulation. 
Um, and that's because there are so many impacted stakeholders. On the one side, we have environmental activists who want zero uh, carbon emissions from next week. And on the other side, we have industry and, um, and an energy intensive user group, for example, which, which need um, fossil fuels to continue um, in order to ensure energy sustainability and, and security. In the long term, we also have, for example, a number of um, coal miners uh, and coal transporters who have jobs who we need to worry about, etc. So there is a, a major balancing act that's required and that all informs the, the just transition. Um, but because of that, it's very difficult to, to find a solution in terms of agreeing the legislation because that legislation needs to balance all of these interests. Um, so I think although we are seeing an increase in legislation, and I know that there are some temporary stop gaps, particularly in the South African environment, I think that the, the real change needs to come from, from industry in terms of making their commitments. And I think this brings us back full circle to your first question and my first answer, which was, um, is ESG, and if we take the ESG um, concept to include climate change, is it an ethical responsibility? Then I go back to my answer, which is yes. And that's where corporate needs to, to play a role. Interesting. Of course, the, the, the one of the problems always when we think about new laws is that uh, we get hung up uh, on, if you wish, the label. If, if one thinks about environmental law and mass, it's fair to say that in some form or other, uh, there has been laws that you know overlap with the need to protect the environment, including uh, reduction of pollution and therefore uh, emissions to to the atmosphere. Uh, in my last reading, and, and, and it may be dated, there were only five countries in the world that had uh, a, a law, and in Africa, Nigeria was the only one. But let's move on. I, I want to turn to you now, uh, Ernest. Um, Sheila, perhaps just to, to respond to you, I, I, um, I would say that Kenya has a fantastic climate change law um, and it's, it's incredibly progressive. And I think uh, Kenya leads the way um, quite often. Suffice to say, of course, that it's one thing to have a law, it's another to then have the uh, human resources and, and institutional capacity to uh, enforce the law, which brings me to my question to Ernest. I mean, part of how we monitor compliance is that there has to be standards for reporting. ESG reporting standards, however, have been quite difficult to you know, standardize so far. What do you think is the solution to this challenge, uh, Ernst? Thank you, Sheila. Again, an interesting and somewhat difficult question to answer. Um, I think perhaps taking one step back before we talk about the solution is we must talk about the problem when it comes to reporting and disclosure requirements. Um, 
if we think about ESG laws as they're going to be conceptualized from now on, it's not necessarily the laws that regulate the substantive aspects. So the bits that you and, and Justine just debated. So the, the climate change bits or the environmental laws or the company acts that regulate uh, fiduciary duties. ESG laws, as we're conceptualizing it now, um, and it's as it has been developed uh, in the EU predominantly, focuses on the storytelling bit. So what, what do you report on? What do you disclose? And if we draw on the, the lessons from the European Union, it's clear that the biggest problem at this point in time is language. It's the taxonomy bit, where we ask ourselves, if we talk about matters that are focusing on sustainability, what are we allowed to say and what shouldn't we say? And under which circumstances do we cross the threshold from an activity that is not sustainable towards an activity that becomes sustainable. And I think that is particularly tangible in an African context where a lot of African countries have not had the opportunity to develop at the same rate as countries in the North because of matters related to energy and access to energy. Of course, as a, as a natural resources expert, Sheila, you would also be very familiar with all of the difficult aspects of the extractive sector where African countries have often been the sources of minerals that were driving a lot of development, whether it is coal as it was in the old days, or now we're focusing on rare earth elements and uh, element, uh, metals such as cobalt and copper, um, to now have to play catch up. And I think if we come back to your question, which is why is it so difficult to standardize reporting and disclosure standards? I think it's about taxonomy in the first place. What words must we use uh, and if we use specific words, what do they mean? Because if you, if you report on a specific aspect using a specific taxonomy, and it's not true and accurate and cannot be backed up by facts, that results in greenwashing uh, or social washing, of course, in the context of, of matters related to people. Uh, but I think on, on a positive note, because I am an eternal optimist, it's important to bear in mind that the International Sustainability Standards Board is driving an international process where they are trying to formulate specific reporting and disclosure guidelines. And I think the question is very timely because just earlier in the week, uh, the ISSB voted to confirm that companies are required to use a climate-related scenario analysis to report on climate resilience and to identify climate-related risks and opportunities to support their, their disclosures. Now, again, what the standard will do once it is published in due course is explain the types of subject matter on which entities must report and how they must go about the specific reporting. And once we have this common language in place that is being rolled out, perhaps first on a voluntary basis globally, um, we will start creating a system where people become comfortable with the language that they're supposed to be using. Um, and I always use the analogy of financial accounting I'm sure that when enterprises back in the Roman days started um, accounting on their, their income and expenditure, revenue, debts, et cetera, perhaps they were a little offended uh, at first, and also they were a bit confused about what types of um, transactions should be recorded under which ledgers. 
But I think as time developed, everybody became a bit more familiar and the same will happen with sustainability related disclosure and reporting. And I think there is a bit of a stick also coming our way, both in South Africa with our JS, Johannesburg Stock Exchange that has published incredibly useful reporting and disclosure guidelines, both for sustainability and then um, in relation to climate change. I see there are movements, of course, in the EU with the Corporate Sustainable uh, Sustainability Reporting Directive, the CSRD, also movements then um, in the United States with the SEC imposing specific reporting and disclosure requirements. So the move is coming. I think it's going to be a transitionary process, but as we go ahead, we will find a common language. And once we all are able to speak this common language of sustainability, we'll be able to report and disclose on our specific activities. Yeah, that's uh, you make a valid point that just as with other uh, areas of the law and other uh, issues that needs a common uh, language and common systems, uh, the mm. reporting is going to evolve until we get to a point where uh, everybody feels that their interests are taken account of, and that for that matter, the interpretation of what matters uh, is, is, is represented. But I also think it, it this invariably speaks to one of the things I said, which is the cost implications. It's not going to be a cheap uh, exercise for host uh, governments, it's going to be expensive because you are breeding a new cadre of professionals and you and, and, and uh, the oversight process itself and the capacity is going to be, I imagine, one of the early challenges. But I, I do want to turn my attention now to uh, Justine. You, you know, uh, Justine, one of the things that intrigues me as we speak about, um, you know, climate change and the importance of protecting the environment through reduction of carbons. Uh, I see an emergence of you know, significant entrepreneurship. And I see that essentially through the carbon markets. And so I wanted to ask you, where do we draw the line between carbon markets related entrepreneurship as such and actions that really directly preserve the environment? So, so Sheila, um, to my mind, I'm not sure that there is in fact a line to be drawn. Carbon markets ultimately seek to achieve preservation, I think. Um, although I do appreciate that there is um, some kind of capitalist um, imperative associated with carbon markets and but we mustn't automatically assume that that means it's a bad thing if there are advantages and benefits for entrepreneurs in addition to environmental pres preservation i see it as a win-win space with no line um, but for me, the challenge is really about making sure that there is a, a real um, and measurable environmental preservation. And that's going to require the, the verification, the, um, the measurement, the monitoring, the reporting, et cetera, which um, goes back to what Ernst was saying about developing an appropriate framework, et cetera. Um, and if it's if it's not going to happen, then it's ultimately going to be um, 
there's going to be a risk of greenwashing, um, which is one of the um, sort of challenges associated with ESG. So uh, you, you Justine, uh, as has Ernest uh, mentioned the notion of greenwashing, what do you mean by greenwashing and why, if at all, do you see there's a problem uh, for ESG uh, advocates? So I think that what, what maybe let me start with uh, what ESG, um, what greenwashing actually is. Um, it was initially very much about people who made false claims that they were doing good from an environmental perspective. So if I, um, if I could look, for example, to the Corporate Finance Institute's definition of greenwashing, it was, or it defines it as when the management team within an organization deliberately or negligently makes false, unsubstantiated or outright misleading statements or claims about the sustainability of a product or a service, or even about the business operations more broadly. And you'll appreciate that if you do that, you are misleading the public, um, you're misleading shareholders, etc. You're misleading regulators even. So what uh, your question is focused on, on greenwashing itself, but I think what we need to appreciate is that in the ESG context, it's gone much further than greenwashing. We have all colors of, of washing these days. Um, and I, uh, I've come to call it purpose washing because um, it, it can fall under the social banner as well, um, that kind of thing. So Ernest, uh... Justine has uh, given us a textbook definition of greenwashing, but also advanced it to acknowledge there are other problematic areas. Why, from your perspective, do you think uh, greenwashing is a problem for ESG? Well, gr greenwashing, I think, similar to ESG, is, is a new name that they, or a new label that they put on an old bottle of wine. Um, where ESG is really a, a, an emphasis on sustainability, greenwashing, Sheila, is misrepresentation. Now, if I, if I put a legal hat on, I can tell you that people can intentionally misrepresent. Um, and in layman's terms, we, we normally refer to that as fraud, where you try to um, convince someone that you are up to one specific type of activities when in fact you are doing the, the alternative. Uh, or you can negligently misrepresent, of course, where you uh, think that you're doing one thing, but the way that you're framing a specific statement results in you misrepresenting the truth. Uh, and the, the litmus test that I always suggest clients use is they must determine whether or not they can prove whatever it is that they're saying with facts. Now, in the context of ESG, as Justine explained, when we talk about greenwashing, it's when you put statements out there to try and convince your stakeholders. And your stakeholders could, of course, be your employees, it could be society at large, or it could be your customers, um, that you're engaging in a specific environmentally sound or sustainable activity 
when in reality that's not the case. And I think one of the classic examples that arose at the end of last year was a case in Italy where one vehicle seat manufacturer was claiming that they were using 100% recycled material when, and when they produced their, the chairs for their specific cars. And one of their competitors said, this is nonsense. And they called them out on it and they took them to court and said, prove that you are using 100% recyclable, recyclable material. And the, the defendant wasn't able to do so. And the reason why this is an issue, Sheila, is because consumers today are conscious of the environment. They're conscious of sustainable business practices. So when they buy products, ex especially expensive products like motor vehicles, they start thinking about what the impact on the environment will be. And if a specific manufacturer pursues a strategy to claim that their practices are more sustainable than their competitors, uh, that gives them a competitive advantage. And of course, consumers will likely pursue the more sustainable, the more environmentally friendly scenario. And if it ends up that this is not backed by fact, then this is misrepresentation. It gives rise to competition law questions, gives rise to issues in tort or in delict, as we call it in South Africa. Um, and at the end of the day, it's about creating a fair environment, right? So, and that's that. So, in ESG, we focus a lot on the washing side of things, um, simply to try and explain to to clients and customers what it is that you must be alive to. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's it's not something new. And as I said, the way that you cure it. It's by simply making sure when, when you put any information in the public domain, and this is the guidance that the, the United Kingdom's Green Claims Code that was produced by its competition authority um, provides, is that you must always try and determine if whatever you say can be supported by facts. Mm. Um, and, and that, I mean, that applies to any, any, any business. It could be law firms on the one hand, if law firms said that they engage in a form of specific uh, purpose-related activities. Uh, and if they can't prove that by, with, by reference to their responsible business reports, then of course they are, they are misrepresenting the truth. And I think that that's, that's what's dangerous, but uh, it's also not something new. And it's also something that you can prevent by just being conscious of what it is that you put out in the public domain. Hmm. So it's interesting because you, you are in some way uh, further explaining what you meant by the same language, because part of the same language here is that when you say it is sustainable, what is the definition of that? When we say a product uses uh, sustainable material, what should that look like? And, and, and once we get to agree in that, then everybody is, is uh, uh, on the same page, but you're also right that what we are dealing here is, is misstatements or deliberate intention to mislead, and that can happen yes. anyway. And, and, and so it, it suffices then that part of the way forward is public education, so people know uh, what to look for and how to question yeah. products, because it's one thing to have the law, it's another for the consumers themselves to be part of an active groundswell of watchdogs, because mm. we have a common language and we have a common understanding of, you know, what uh, in effect, uh, you know, ESG compliant uh, corporate behavior looks like. Th that was very interesting. Let me turn to Justine for a moment, if I may. Please. So, uh, uh, Justine, if I could just ask you the, the question, 
you know, we've talked that there are some countries, you mentioned Kenya, I mentioned uh, Nigeria, that already have climate change legislation. I mean, the, the absence of laws uh, in most of the country's legal uh, jurisdictions, uh, you know, it, does it impede the actual uh, mitigating of impacts of climate change? Or do you think there is enough in current policy and legal frameworks to address the problem? Um, thanks, Sheila. Uh, this is a, a really lovely question for me. Um, so I, I think that what we, what we need to appreciate is that number one, statute is not the only form of law that we have. There is always going to be an underlying basic uh, legal framework that applies um, in, in countries, and that's generally the common law. There will also be um, constitutional laws which, which apply. Um, and number two, there are some very clever lawyers out there. Um, so we are increasingly seeing cases um, on, on fairly novel grounds being brought. They are also being brought in um, interesting forums. So not just looking at, at the, um, the courts, they may be coming to the, the Human Rights Commission. The Philippines Human Rights Commission is, is one example of a, of a case that was brought um, in an interesting forum. Um, so from my perspective, although there might be an absence of, of clear statutes or regulations, there's a a wealth of international law, common law, constitutional law, which is being ingeniously used. And that's putting pressure on, um, on corporates and the, and the carbon majors to, to take action. Um, so for example, uh, just to give you um, some context, in, in 2022, the International Panel on Climate Change recognized the role of litigation in affecting the outcome and ambition of, of climate governance specifically. And in terms of numbers, they... Um, confirmed that since 2015, the total number of climate change related cases has been um, over 2000. And around one quarter of these have been filed between 2020 and 2022. So you can see that there's a massive trajectory in terms of the number of climate change litigation related cases that are being brought. And we can therefore see that climate change litigation has become a critical instrument being used to enforce or enhance climate commitments. Um, and when I say um, climate commitments, it's, it's A, forcing governments to um, comply with their commitments made in terms of um, international agreements like the Paris, um, the Paris Agreement, etc. But also in terms of looking at corporate commitments that have been made. And this goes back to the greenwashing thing. If you make a commitment, then you must stick to it. 
Um, and if you don't, then you are at risk of litigation. So, um, yeah, I would say that, you know, there isn't an absence of law and we are certainly um, finding novel ways to mitigate the impact of, of climate change from a, from a legal perspective. That's interesting. Uh, no offense to uh, your profession, but it does look to me that whatever you do, there'll always be business for lawyers. If you don't have a law, then we'll find ingenious ways to use current laws. And when you get the law, then by God, we are fully empowered. So good for you. <laughs> I, we have two minutes left and I, I, I'm going to give you uh, the parting shot. Uh, and I mean, Thank you. you know, the growth of carbon markets uh, and the absence of a single standard is, is problematic, especially for countries trying to benefit from financial growth of these markets. What do we know about Africa's own capacity to regulate such initiatives and being a full player in the global carbon market uh, trading environment? Thank you, Sheila. Um, I think the short answer there is that it's very difficult for African countries at this point in time to participate in the, the global carbon market simply because there really isn't a global carbon market at the moment because there's no global standard, again, for um, carbon pricing and carbon trading specifically. Uh, I think everybody listening to the call today would hopefully buy into the concept of an emission trading scheme but until the world agrees on a specific carbon price uh, per metric ton of carbon dioxide emissions, which I understand economists say must be between 50 and $100 per ton for it to be economically enticing for, for market players to want to participate. I, I, and uh, a, a trading scheme that ensures that there is no double accounting that takes place. It will be difficult for African countries to actively participate in a carbon market. But at the same time, if we appreciate that with the exception of South Africa, the rest of Africa's contribution towards carbon emissions is very low, but we have massive carbon sinks in the form of the forests that can consume carbon and, and fix it. So the big term there is sequester the carbon in a, in a permanent stage. Then I think that there's huge opportunity for African countries to start selling carbon credits. Um, and I'm hopeful that this will receive a lot of airtime at COP27, uh, where the different role players across the world can start formulating uh, an international trading scheme and framework so that we don't have a scenario where the EU has one system, uh, China and has another one, America, Canada, Japan, etc. all have their own trading systems, but where we have an international system uh, where market players uh, all trade from the same premise on the same platform, because uh, that will ensure that Africa, again, uh, is afforded a voice in the system, because I think that there are fantastic models to pursue. I think the Gambia, as an example, is doing great work by protecting its forests and ensuring that the environment there is preserved, but using the, the sequestering abilities of its natural resources as a tradable commodity. Again, I think that the issue is just to protect the, the world at large from double accounting and to ensure that we, at the end of the day, and maybe I'd like to end on that note, as an ESG lawyer, but advising everybody to remain transparent, accountable, and responsive at all times. That's fantastic. I, I couldn't agree with you more on the need to harvest uh, the 
economic value of Africa's uh, carbon sequestration capacity. I, I read recently a report that as a matter of fact, Africa's carbon sink capacity now exceeds that of the Amazon basin, which is phenomenal when yeah. you think about it. So yes, uh, I, I'm looking forward to that too. Let's end on that note, both Ernst and Justine. Thank you very much for joining the Sheila Kama Extracting Podcast. I've enjoyed speaking with you and expect that my followers will do too. Thank, Thank you, you very much for having us.